When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words whilst teaching in the temple courts, near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. Thanks, Woody, for um, reading that for us. Do keep that open as we look at it together. Now, Jesus makes um, a claim here, quite an astonishing claim when it's put in context, but one that we don't um, necessarily get the full importance of when we first look at it. So I'm going to try and unpack the claim as we ask, what is Jesus' claim? And then we're going to try and think how we respond to this claim intuitively. And then lastly, how we can kind of respond to this claim more positively by coming to Jesus the light. And the claim is there in verse 12. Look down with me. Jesus said, spoke again to the people. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, the context where Jesus makes this claim, as we think about it, is on um, the last and greatest day of a festival that was being held at Jerusalem, a great pilgrimage of the festival of Sukkot, as the Israelites would call it. It's known as the Feast of Booths, as we translate it today. You can see it was the last and greatest day of the festival from chapter 8, verse 37. Um, It's still the same day in John's Gospel. He's writing about that same day. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. 
And then later on, Jesus moves his location within the context of the festival, but it's still the same day. Coming towards the end of the day now, and if you look down with me at verse 20, we get the place where he says this. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now, the significance of the context and the significance of the place is quite important because the Feast of Booths was all about the Israelites remembering the Exodus when God had called them out of Egypt, taken them through the Red Sea, through the desert, gathered them around Mount Sinai, and eventually, after 40 years of wanderings, had delivered them into the Promised Land. And as that story had been told over the years, three great symbols had come to be um, you know, really emblematic of what the Exodus was all about. First of all, there was the symbol of water as God had taken his people through the Red Sea. Then there was the symbol of bread as God had fed his people miraculously with the manna, the bread, in the wilderness. And then there was the symbol of light as God had, by a pillar of fire, led his people, guided them through the Red Sea and through the wanderings in the wilderness. And so the Feast of Booths was structured around those three great symbols, water, bread, and light, or rather in order, bread, water, and light. And similarly, John has structured his material. John chapter 6 is all about Jesus feeding the 5,000 with bread. John chapter 7 is about Jesus' claim to be water, living water. And then we get in John chapter 8, we get Jesus claiming to be the light of the world. But the place where Jesus makes this claim to be the light of the world is hugely significant. In verse 20, as I showed you, we have it in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were. And on the first day of the Feast of Sukkot, all of the pilgrims would gather into the temple courts, thronging with thousands and thousands of pilgrims. And they would be under a huge candelabra, bigger and more extravagant than our wonderful lights here. And at that day, on the first day, they would light up the candelabra, and as they lit it up, the temple choir would burst into song, and the instruments would start playing, and all the pilgrims would start dancing and celebrating, and they would celebrate two things. They would celebrate God being the light of the world, and they would celebrate and look forward to the coming of Messiah, God's promised chosen king, who would bring light into the world. So here is Jesus standing in the temple courts underneath this giant candelabra on the busiest day of the festival. And he stands there, and as everyone is thronging around on this great day of the festival, he shouts out in a loud voice under the candelabra, I am the light of the world. Do you see what he's claiming? Everybody got it at the time. He's claiming to be God. And he's claiming to be the promised coming king, Messiah, who will bring light into the world. Which is why, as we'll see, the Pharisees get so hot under the collar and seek to give him the punishment for blasphemy, for claiming to be God, which is a stoning, seek to kill him later on. But let's just try and understand a bit more about this claim to be the light of the world. It's a clear claim to divinity. If you've ever heard people say the nonsense that Jesus never claims to be God, then just take them to this verse. It's the clearest claim to divinity. And of course, in an ancient world where there were many gods that people believed in, Jesus is not claiming to be any general god. He's claiming to be the god of the Exodus, the one true god, the god who brought his people out of Egypt, who delivered them out of slavery, that god. He's claiming to be that very specific god. But he's claiming to be God, make no mistake. But more than that, light is a wonderful thing, right? Light is about life. God's first created act in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 is to 
bring light into the world. He says, let there be light. Why is the first creative act to bring light? Because light is that which gives life to all things. And this is a harvest festival, and of course, we celebrate the harvest festival light. Without light, there is no grain, there is no ripening, there's no food, there's no harvest, there's no life, no joy, no celebration. Light is about life. Light is not only about life, but also in the Bible, light is about God's moral purity, perfection, and goodness. You know this, don't you? If you've got children and they have a nightmare, what's the first thing you do? You go in and you turn on the lights and say, there are no monsters. Light is about goodness. <laughs> Darkness is often seen as um, that which is bad. Even as an adult, you know, if you're walking down an alley and it's dark at night, you get a little chill running down your um, you know, your spine, you remind yourself you're an adult and you don't need to be scared anymore. And we get that. Light is about moral goodness. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and goes on in verse 12 to say, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's saying two things to us. He's saying, do you want life, real life? Do you want energy, vitality, sustaining you, keeping you going now and into eternity, life beyond the grave? Well, if you come to me, the light of the world, I will give you that divine life, the life of God in the soul of a man or woman that sustains them now and into eternity. That means that death is not the end, that there is life beyond the grave. That is what John's gospel arguably is all about, this great claim of life for those who believe in Jesus Christ. And he's also saying... Do you want God's moral goodness in your life, working in your heart from the in to the out, changing you, transforming you? He's saying, are you frustrated with the person you are? Do you have a sense that the ideal that you long to be is not yet realized? Do you want to change, be transformed? Do you want God's power in your life to change you? Come to me. I am utter moral goodness, he says, and as you come to me, I will change you from the inside out. That's the nature of the claim that is being made here. So how do we respond then to a claim like this? Well, it's interesting that what you get in verse 13 is not what you might expect. You might expect people to say, eternal life, moral transformation, this is what we've been after, this is what we want. Oh, we'll come to you, but verse 13, you get this strange thing. The Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness, your testimony is not valid. What's going on here? Well, they're saying to Jesus, kind of, prove it. Prove your credentials. You're claiming to be the light of the world. Go on, then. Where are your credentials? Now, we get this in our own context. You know, if someone makes a claim in business or something, you normally say, where's your reference letter? Or can I see your CV to see your work that you've done before? Effectively, I, I want to scrutinize your credentials. Way, way more important back then. Any Pharisee who came along claiming to be a particular you know, significant person, they would ask for their credentials. And we actually see it in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul comes. Sometimes he will refer to the fact that he was taught under the Pharisee Gamaliel. Everyone knew who Gamaliel was. He was a very important Pharisee. So Paul got a degree of credibility by referring to him. So they're saying to Jesus, show us your credentials. Show us your CV. Justify your claims. But of course, there's a problem, isn't it? Because in order to justify a claim, you have to refer to someone greater than you. So for example, if I am going for a job and you say, give me your references, if I give you the references of a junior employee, you wouldn't accept them. But if I give you the references of mine, of my boss, you'd accept them, because it always has to be, you refer to someone greater who has credibility. 
But if Jesus is claiming to be God, what references does God give? I put it another way. Stephen Hawking has um, tragically died in the last 24 hours. But do you ever notice how when Stephen Hawking would either write his books or make his claims that he would um, he wouldn't refer to other physicists as though he needed kind of them to validate him. He would just do the maths and do the physics work and say, there's the answer. And that was why he was acknowledged to be so great, because he got to the point where he was so great he needed no authentication. He was, if you like, great enough in this field of physics that he was his own authentication. Well, if that's the case for Stephen Hawking, how much more for the God of the universe? Give us your credentials, show us your references, God. Who's he going to appeal to? Jesus is claiming here to be divine. And the very idea that we as human beings would put him in the dock and say, justify your claim, is impudent, is totally outrageous. But notice that that doesn't just mean, therefore, we go, oh, well, anyone who claims to be divine, then we have to believe them. Otherwise, we'd be believing lots of crackpots and people in mental asylums, right? So what does Jesus say? He goes on. Look with me at verse 16. If I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. He says, in other words, there is a testimony that will authenticate him. It's the only person in the universe who could authenticate him. It's the one who is co-equal with him and equally as great as him, his Father in heaven. The Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Jesus is saying, the Father and I are one and therefore the Father can testify to me. And he goes on in verse 17, in your own law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. That was a feature of the day to testify in court. You had to have two witnesses to back yourself up. And verse 18, I am one who testifies for myself. I have my own authority. And my other witness is the Father who sent me. Let me try and break down what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, look, you are challenging me and calling me for a witness. Not because there is a lack of evidence because the Father has been testifying about me in front of you, and I've been testifying about myself in front of you from day one. How has the Father been testifying about him? Through Scripture. Jesus says that the Father's words are in Scripture, that the Bible is the Father speaking to us. And throughout the Bible, God the Father has been saying that he will act in space-time and history through doing the Exodus, for example, and promising that this is just a picture of one day he will send his great king, Messiah, who will do the same deeds and will fulfill the longings and ultimately fulfill the prophecies of Scripture. So, for example... Just as the Father fed his people in the desert miraculously, so when Jesus comes, as I said in John chapter 6, what does Jesus do? He does the same works the Father does. He miraculously feeds 5,000 families, really, more than 5,000 people, in the desert, miraculously. He does the same thing the Father did. Just as the Father can split the seas and take his people across the Red Sea, in John chapter 6, Jesus walks across the water in full view of his disciples. Just as the Father is the one who raises people from the dead, so we see Jesus raising people from the dead. Just as the Father is the one who can do miraculous and control creation, so we see Jesus' first sign is turning water into wine. You see, Jesus is saying, don't you see what's happening? All these things that God did in the Old Testament, I'm now doing in front of you. So do the math. It's not complicated. Who am I? I'm making the claim. I'm telling you I'm the light of the world. I am the great I am. I am God. Here I am in front of you. And the fact that the Pharisees, who had spent all of their lives studying the Scriptures, 
saying that they were longing for the Messiah to come. The fact that they don't recognize that is not a lack of information, it's a lack of inclination. It's not that there's a lack of evidence. Jesus has done these more remarkable miracles. They don't want to believe. Why don't they want to believe? Well, the clue is about how they judge in verse 15. Look at verse 15. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. In other words, here's the problem. If someone with absolute authority, absolute moral purity, absolute goodness and holiness walked into the world and said to us, I am the ultimate authority. You only have life in your lungs, air in your lungs and life in your bones because I allow it. You only have beauty in your world because I've gifted it to you. You only have moral goodness because I'm the ultimate moral standard and therefore you owe everything to me. I have given you everything. I am the Lord of all. We don't generally go, fantastic, tell me how to live. <laughs> we normally say, you've got to be kidding me. I owe everything to you. Get off your high horse. Come down to human standards. We don't like it. And that's what the Pharisees do. They push back. We don't like the idea that everything we have is a gift from God. We like to claim that we are self-made people. We don't like the idea that there is a source of light that is greater than us. We like the idea that I am the light in the room. Thank you, Jesus. You might claim you were the light of the world. Have you noticed how I'm the light in the room? Have you ever noticed when someone dominates a conversation, how you stand there thinking, I'd quite like to be center of the conversation? Or, of course, some of us say, I don't want to be center of the conversation, which, of course, is a kind of funny way of actually thinking about yourself rather than everybody else, which is putting yourself at the center of the conversation. See how that works? We don't respond to the light by saying, wonderful. We respond to the light by saying, I prefer to dwell in the darkness. And so they push back. It's just worth pausing on this for a moment. I often hear people saying, and I used to say myself when I wasn't a Christian, if only I could see more evidence about Jesus, then I would believe. If only Jesus was here today, did the miracles in front of me today, then I would believe. And there's a sense in which, of course, evidence is crucial to belief. No one is asking you to make a leap in the dark. But please notice that the Pharisees had all the evidence in front of them. They knew the Bibles better than any of us here would do. And yet they do not believe. Why? No lack of information, but they lack the inclination to believe because they see Jesus as a threat to their worldly view and their worldly standards, and it's the same today. Which then leads us to the third and final point, how can we come to the light? I don't know what you think, um, if you've reflected on a kind of really bright light, but um, bright light is not always very comfortable. A while back, and my wife's here today, so I better be careful about this story, but a while back we were in Boots, and um, Rebecca was trying to buy some makeup, and I was a bit bored, because I was in Boots in the makeup session, of course, I was bored. Um, and uh, so I went to my phone to try to look at um, BBC Sport, but nightmare, no phone reception. So what do you do? So um, I started fiddling. Now, men, can I just be a word to the wise here? You shouldn't fiddle in the cosmetic sections as a man in boots because you really don't know what you're doing. But I went over to one of those mirrors that had the bright cosmetic lights around it, and I turned the light on. I don't know why I turned the light on. I was looking for something to do. Okay, run with me on this one. And I looked close up at the mirror. Now, I don't know, I'm not going to ask you for a public um, you know, uh, kind of witness on this right now, but I don't know what you make of what you see in front of you on this light. Can I just say that when you look at me under really intense light, it is astonishingly bad news. <laughs> I mean, blemishes I never knew that I had. 
You know, just the way that the flaws are exposed in my complexion, it was quite astonishing to me. I almost went and bought makeup after that. <laughs> I turned the light off pretty quickly and moved away and decided never to look in a cosmetic mirror again. Now, was the light exposing things that weren't there? No, those things are there. The blemishes, the wrinkles, the crinkles, the gaps, the problems, they're all there to see under the right type of light. The point is, is at normal time, I'm not in that type of light and they're not exposed. So it is with Jesus Christ. He is the perfect moral purity and light in the world. And so we say, I'm not a bad person. Yeah, I'm not as bad as everybody, as some people else, or as everybody says, but I, you know, I'm not a really bad person. That's all fine when you're not really being exposed. It's like me just walking around in the half-light, and you say, oh, he's not much to look at, but he's not the worst. But then you see it up close, under real examination, every floor exposed, every blemish brought under the light of God's moral purity, then you evaluate yourself, it's a very different verdict. In the film, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Tom Ripley, who's a very um, ambiguous character for a lot of the film and turns out to be quite an evil person, says this. He says, you never meet anybody that thinks they're a bad person, do you? Don't you just take the past and put it in a room, in a basement, and lock the door and never go in there? That's what I do. And then you meet someone special, and all you want to do is to toss them the key and say, open up, step inside. But you can't, because it's dark. There are demons, and if anybody saw how ugly it is, I keep wanting to do that, fling the door open, just let light in, and clean everything out. But I can't. wonder if you've ever had that sense when you've got beyond your own bravado for a moment and realized you're not the person you long to be, there is a basement. There is a darkness in the heart of every human being. Yes, in your heart and yes, in my heart. And in that moment, you want to say, oh, that someone would see it and would cleanse me from it and would accept me despite it. And yet you recoil and go back into the darkness. The way to come to Jesus Christ is to accept that there is darkness in the human heart, not to try to hide it, as you come to the light, there is an exposing experience as you see his moral goodness and you realize you are not perfect, you are not good by his standards. And initially, it's painful, but as C.S. Lewis once said, it's like drinking a hot cup of tea. It might just scold a little bit on the way down, but then he does you a world of good and warms you up. And so as you come to Jesus, there's the initial confrontation with you're not the person you should be. But he doesn't expose your darkness to condemn you. The wonderful thing about Jesus Christ is he exposes our darkness to change us and to redeem us. Turn over the page and just look with me at verse 24. Here is Jesus exposing our darkness. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he you will indeed die in your sins. He's saying there is a darkness in every human heart. And because of it, it's killing you. Because you've turned away from God, the source of goodness in the world, and therefore you have no goodness, no life anymore for eternity. But he doesn't say that to condemn you, because look where he goes on to verse 28. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Why is he talking about being lifting up? Because he says the way to come to the light is to first of all let your sin be exposed, but then let it be exposed so that he can deal with it. Because when Jesus is lifted up, he's talking about his death on the cross. And he dies on the cross, 
not to condemn our sin, but to save us from our sin, not to judge us, but to redeem us. He says on the cross two things, really, very loud and clear. First of all, he says, your moral impurity, the darkness in your heart, is so serious that I can't just roll my eyes and say, boys will be boys and girls will be girls. It's not that bad. I can't just forgive. It's so serious, I have to die for it. But then he says, I'm so committed to redeeming you and saving you that I'm prepared to die for it. And so he says, don't fear the light. Come into the light. See the light of my life and my death and my resurrection. And as you come to the light, let me change you and redeem you and forgive you. And it's utterly transforming. He, the great source of light, experienced cosmic darkness on the cross. In John's Gospel, it tells us that there was a supernatural phenomenon as the darkness descended on the earth for three hours whilst Jesus died on the cross. He, the great source of life, the eternal one, died on the cross so that we might come into the light and have life. As the words of a hymn say, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again, bringing light into the world and bringing life into those who will turn to him. So there we are, that's the claim. That's how we intuitively respond and that's how we can come to the light, by letting the light expose our darkness and by letting the light redeem and forgive our darkness. Two words by application as we um, close. First of all, a word about our blindness. It's strange here, isn't it, that the Pharisees could have spent so long studying the scriptures, so long saying they're waiting for Messiah, and yet when actually faced with Jesus Messiah, God himself in human form, to reject him. And the reason is, is because they are spiritually blind. There is a sense in which all of us, by nature, are spiritually blind. That is, we do not see things as we really need to see things. To come to Jesus is to say, actually, I need you to open my eyes. I need you to show me the way that things really are. And therefore, whenever a blind spot is exposed, there's a re-evaluation process that goes on. You see things a new way, and you kind of go, I never saw them that way before. I never knew that there was a God in heaven. I, I've been living the whole of my life as though there's no God. How could I be so blind? And that requires a big re-evaluation. But you know what? It's because you're now seeing things properly. Some people get so wedded to their blind spots, they won't leave them alone. Are you ready for your blind spots to be exposed? As you come to Jesus Christ, he exposes your blind spots, but he helps you to see things truly. But that's not always comfortable, so just be prepared for that. Secondly, a word about our darkness. The path to change is not just a one-off letting your darkness be exposed. It's a perpetual process of as I come to Jesus day by day and moment by moment, my darkness is exposed. I feel that as I want to shrink back and then I realize it's for my good and I step forward and realize he wants to save me and transform me. Is that dynamic, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, ongoing in your life? When was the last time you can articulate that the darkness was exposed? You felt that initial pang of drawback, but you didn't. You pushed forward, you drew within, and you let Jesus change you. That is the normal path of Christian change. And if you're not having that regularly in your life, and can I say, if you don't have people who will speak to the darkness in your life occasionally, then you won't change. He wants to change you. He wants to bring more light into your life. So have good friends who are prepared to gently and graciously confront you and get used to that process of change. The darkness exposed, but then the light redeems it. 
Thanks for listening. Let me lead us in a prayer as we close. Father God, we praise you for this great claim of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the light of the world. And we praise you that it has as much currency today as it ever did, and that we need that light, that life-giving presence in our lives. And we need Jesus' transforming power to change us in our lives as well. Wherever we're coming from today, whether this is the first time we've heard this, Lord, and whether this is, in a sense, exposing some of our blind spots, or whether we would call ourselves Christians and are familiar with this, Lord God, please change us and help us to get used to that dynamic of change as the light exposes our darkness, but then as the light changes our darkness as well. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.